Would you turn in your Bibles to John 16? Gospel of John chapter 16. We're looking into Jesus' farewell discourse as he's talking to his apostles and preparing them for what is to come at his crucifixion and as that crucifixion approaches. And he wants them to know something very important, that he's not leaving them alone. And though they may have trouble wrapping their minds around it at this point, what's going to happen is good for them. And he wants them to know that. And so let's read in the text starting in verse 6, John 16, 6 through 14. It says this, But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let's pray. Our Father, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Now, to give us perspective on uh, this text, as we dive into this text, just remember how outrageous and overwhelming things would have seemed for the apostles at this point. Just a, just a few years ago, Many of them were simple country fishermen, men of little to no education, nothing close to prominence or position, not even among their own people, which of course were the Jews, which at this point in history were pretty feeble and powerless themselves. And, and Jesus is saying that these are the men who will turn the whole world upside down. He tells them that they will be brought before rulers and kings, and be persecuted, and proclaim his kingdom and his gospel in the face of the imperial power of Rome, and in the face of the ancient wisdom of the Greeks, and in the face of the idolatrous barbarians, and the wayward Israelites, establishing the kingdom of peace and righteousness from heaven. And if such an incredible task given to such small and lowly band of men, were not daunting enough. Then he also says that their, their fearless leader is going to be leaving them physically at the same time that they are receiving this commission. Their whole new life has been built around him and his presence with them. When they were afraid or frustrated that they couldn't overcome some obstacle, they'd call on him. They'd run to him. When they were stumped by the arguments of the Jewish opposition, they looked to Jesus Peter said he alone had the words of eternal life. He always knew what to say when they very frequently didn't. He always knew what to do when they didn't. They'd been accustomed to leaning on him. 
His presence was their great comfort and shield, and now he would leave them. They'd be like orphans without a caretaker. And, and they have this incredible, overwhelming mission, and the only one of them who was actually up to the task is leaving. And you have to grasp this to understand how extraordinarily good this news is, this promise of the Holy Spirit to them. That even if they can't fully comprehend or grasp it at this point, it's incredible good news. And, and Charles Spurgeon wrote about this. I love the way he said it. He said, if we judge according to sense and carnal reason, their adventure was naive. Their success was impossible. Everybody would have said to them, Go back to your nets and your boats. What can you do against the established system of Judaism in your own country? And if that be too hard for you, what will you be able to do in other lands? There are nations that have been tutored in their own learning for thousands of years and have become adept in all the arts and sciences. They have brought all the charms of poetry and music and statuary to support their idolatrous systems. You are fools to think that you unlearned and ignorant men can ever overturn all this. Would not wisdom agree with this? Aye, but if God is in these men, if he that dwelt in the bush at Horeb and made it burn, though it was not consumed, will dwell in them, and each one of them shall be gifted with a tongue of fire, this is a different business altogether. Surely he that made the world could make it anew. He that said, let there be light, and there was light, could command light to shine upon the moral and spiritual night. Isn't that good? It changes everything, this promise of the Holy Spirit. It is the confidence of having God himself in their work, which these men had been accustomed to in, in one sense, right? But now, in an even greater sense, that's what Jesus says. It is better for you that I go. And that sounds wild to us, doesn't it? Better that he go? How? Why? Well, he says why. He says, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. And when he says the helper, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And then he says, but if I go, I will send him to you. And again, we ask why? Why will he not come unless Jesus goes? Why will he only send him to them then? And again, we get an answer when we keep reading. It's because the Holy Spirit has a particular purpose. He has a goal in mind. And it's, it's, a, it's a goal that only he can accomplish once Christ has died on the cross and been resurrected and ascended. The Holy Spirit, in other words, is not just a power in general. He's not just a general power. He's a powerful person. And he has a personal agenda to glorify his beloved son of God in all his gracious splendor. He wants to shine a spotlight on Jesus Christ and his gospel, which he can only do in fullness once Christ has accomplished his redemptive work. And that's why he comes once Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And this means that spirituality for Christians is something much more specific than it is for other people. Like people talk about being spiritual and they mean some kind of vague and mystical idea that can branch off in a bunch of different directions, being in tune with your inner self or in tune with the universe or with something or some things immaterial or just being awakened to some, some moral or emotional or ethereal thing. 
or even recognizing that there's some kind of general God. This is what people talk about with spirituality. It's, it's couched in vague terms. But for us, the, being spiritual means that we are in tune with a very specific person who has very specific aims. And we are spiritual when we are filled with the Spirit. And the Spirit is at work for one overarching and very specific goal, to glorify the crucified, resurrected, ascended Jesus Christ. To be truly spiritual is to have your spirit intertwined in purpose with the Spirit in his holy ambition. And to get to that point, you must come through his threefold work of conviction. And here Jesus decided to bless the preachers and he gave us a little three-point sermon outline regarding the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 8, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. There's Jesus' little three-point sermon outline about the work of the Holy Spirit. But it's really one action applied in three different ways. When the helper comes, he says, he will convict the world. The Holy Spirit convicts. And what does it mean to convict? That, we use that word in English in three main ways. We use it to talk about awakening a consciousness of guilt, right? Like when a person talks about feeling convicted of some wrongdoing. But we also use it in courtrooms to talk about proving someone's guilt, whether they are willing to admit it or not. Kind of a kind of legal exposing and declaration of the fact of someone's guilt. But we also use it in a positive sense to speak of firmly held beliefs that actually matter to you. We say he's a man of conviction, right? I think all of these are at play here in the work of the Spirit. He convicts, he wakes us up to our guilt. He exposes or proves our guilt, whether we confess it or not. And he also drives the truth deep into our heart. In other words, he makes reality real to us. He's the great awakener. And there are three realities here that we, in our natural fallen state, we tend to reject or suppress or kick against. We, but we must face them. Head on if we are to be set free. We hate these things. We hate and therefore we dismiss the ideas of sin and righteousness and judgment. At least as they pertain to us. And the Spirit's work is to work in our hearts to establish these things as solemn foundational realities for our lives. And he starts with convicting us of sin. It's more popular in our day, of course, to emphasize comfort and encouragement over admonition and accusation. Don't judge, don't, don't condemn, or make people feel bad for their failure. But the way of the Spirit is different. He comes to convict the world of sin, which I believe at least in part means to make us feel that we are guilty, to, to feel the weight of our guilt. That we are so guilty that we have shipwrecked our souls. And to feel the devastating desperation of one who is shipwrecked at sea. Yes, it's true that the Spirit wants to awaken us to the glory and beauty of Christ. But it's impossible to do that without seeing our own depravity 
before him. The contrast is it's natural and necessary for one to draw. Like I was just, like just watching the, the movie Hook with the kids the other night. And when Peter sees his son playing baseball with Captain Hook and the joy that he's having, then Peter immediately realizes what a schmuck he'd been for missing all of his son's games. To really be awake to the good also wakes you up to the bad. You can't have one without the other. You can't really see how great Christ is without also seeing how terrible your sin against him is. And this is what the Spirit does. We can get confused because he's called the helper and the comforter, and, but, but he doesn't come to make us comfortable in our sin. He comes to make us grieve over our sin, to convince us of it, to wake us up to the enormity of it. One more Charles Spurgeon quote. He says, It is no work of the Spirit to pipe to men's dancing. He does not bring forth flute and harp and dulcimer and all kinds of music to charm the unbelieving into a good opinion of themselves. He comes to make sin appear sin and to let us see its fearful consequences. He comes to wound so that no human balm can heal, to kill so that no earthly power can make us live. In other words, we have to be torn down before we can be built up. We have to be emptied before we can be filled. We have to be withered in order to be cultivated. We must be humbled before we can be exalted. Otherwise, we'll become like whitewashed tombs. Or we'll be like that cockroach guy from the Men in Black movie. Remember him? Probably the most memorable movie villain of all time. A giant alien cockroach wearing the skin of a man. And when he walks around, he kind of looks like a man in a passable enough way, but almost everybody can tell there's something wrong there. He's got a man's outside, but an evil alien cockroach's insides. And if such a metaphor seems too harsh, then you're not thinking of sin rightly. Until such a metaphor seems appropriate to you for sin, we aren't getting it. This is why we can't make headway with certain people because they technically say right things easy enough, but they haven't been convicted of it. Oh yeah, we're sinners. No doubt, nobody's perfect. We're sinners, all sinners. Christ died for sinners. They say this in a light and easy breezy way like they're reading a brunch menu. This is a heavenly mystery which angels are awestruck by and long to look into. When the Spirit does his work, sinners become real sinners, and they mourn that they are so. And in such a person, and only in such a person, is the gospel really appreciated. Only serious sinners take seriously the Savior and his gospel of grace. There's an old hymn that has a line that I love. It says, a sinner is a sacred thing. The Holy Ghost has made him so. A person truly convicted of sin by the Spirit is a precious work of God. It requires the power of God because our sin is self-protective. It marshals all of its power in rationalizing and justifying itself. We have an uncanny ability to explain away our sin. Even the very worst objectively evil people in the world think that they're good. And you hear this when people say things like, but I, or at least I, or I only, or I'm not really, I'm just, here, I, I do this bad thing, but I also do this good thing. 
I sin in this way, but at least I don't sin in that other way. I only sin in this way in, with these particular boundaries. I'm not really sinning. I'm just doing something that seems simi similar to the casual observer. This is why as a preacher, I am hopeless without the Holy Spirit. Amen. Your denial is too powerful for me to overcome. There's some preachers who think they can get up with a particular sinner in mind and, and preach it out of them. But what that preacher doesn't know is that that person that they have in mind thinks he's talking about someone else. The Spirit must do this work in us. He must convict of sin. And notice what Jesus says about this. Of sin because they don't believe in me. And this is where it really becomes clear that this requires the work of the Spirit because nobody sees their unbelief as sin unless the Spirit is working. In Hebrews 2, there's asked this haunting rhetorical question, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And then in chapter 11, we're told, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Amen. Unbelief is the root of all sin. Or unbelief in God, I should say, because it's not that we don't have faith. We do. We just put our faith in wrong things. We believe something else is worth our life. We believe in a million different little things, each to fill a small part of what God made us for. This thing is my comfort. This thing is my hope. This thing is my boasting. This thing is my purpose. This thing is my security. This thing is what I admire most. This thing shapes my morality in this part of life. This thing shapes how I live in this part of life. And so on. All while rejecting the one who made it all. We believe all right. Everything in our life is driven by belief, by faulty faith. And the Spirit makes us look at what we've been doing. The spiteful, self-centered rejection of Christ. And this frames sin in the right context. This is so important because you may, without the Spirit's work, you might recognize that you've done wrong or harm or made a mess of your life or ruined something or hurt someone and dug yourself into a hole. But to call it sin and own it as sin is to say you've wronged God. Not just messed up, not just aching over the consequences, not just low self-esteem, which is really just wounded pride, not just regret. The Spirit makes us see that God is the one against whom we have sinned. And this matters so much more than any other aspect of our wrongdoing that David prays in Psalm 51 against you, you only, have I sinned. Amen. The Holy Helper convicts us of sin, makes it real to us. But he also convicts us concerning righteousness. I think it's helpful if we see these three things, sin, righteousness, judgment as, as like the outworking of a courtroom hearing. Sin is the charge brought against the world. Righteousness is the standard violated. And judgment is the sentencing. And this makes sense of why Jesus says it this way in verse 10. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Jesus is going to his Father that he says there. Is, it's referring to his resurrection and his ascension, which the Bible refers to as a powerful vindication of Christ. God the Father raised Christ from the dead 
in order to reveal his perfect righteousness and therefore the acceptance of his sacrifice. This is what it says in Acts 17. God says, uh, it says, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Jesus' resurrection was a declaration by God of his perfect righteousness. And that therefore he is the standard. He is the standard against whom we are judged and he's the one who will be doing the judging. And so when he sends his spirit, he convicts the world concerning righteousness. And there's two important angles from which to see this conviction of righteousness. First is that there is an objective righteousness. It's embodied in Christ, and it, which we must be convicted of. But the second thing is that that righteousness, that very righteousness, is the righteousness we must receive. And both of these realities regarding righteousness take a supernatural power of conviction by the Spirit. So let me explain them. First, that first one, is that there is an objective standard of righteousness embodied in Christ. And this is, this is the first thing we need the Spirit to convict us of, because this is not our default setting. We, we think we can craft our own righteousness. Again and again, the Bible describes humanity as doing what is right in our own eyes. Doing what is right in our own eyes. We're all like jazz players when it comes to righteousness. Someone plays a lick, and we pick up on it, and we add a little bit of our own to it. And we just keep improvising and playing off the other improvisers. And that can make beautiful music when everyone is really excellent musicians. But you know what it makes when each musician has refused any training or coaching or practice? It makes chaos and noise and discord. Righteousness has a composer and a conductor and sheet music and an exemplar first chair musician. And we cannot shun his training and example and guidance and hope to make his music. Proverbs tells us that what true wisdom is, and it's also the key to, to righteousness. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And he will direct your paths. Him, not you. Him, not you. That is the key to righteousness. The Spirit convicts us of this. After our long habit of doing what seems right to us, he wakes us up to our idolatry. Proverbs says there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is destruction. And you may know that verse. It's pretty popular. But I don't think people realize how radical the implications of it are. Because if that is true then you should regularly find yourself coming face to face with times where you must not do what seems right to you. And it perhaps is even more striking if you say it another way. There will be times that you must conform to what seems wrong to you. Let me give a couple quick examples so you can see what I mean. One example is in the life of a woman named Rachel Gilson, who wrote a book titled Born Again This Way. In college, she attended Yale University, and she was in a same-sex relationship. And she wrote that in that context, pursuing your desire, her desire for same-gender sex and romance publicly marked her as a hero, brave and strong. But denying it makes you a villain. 
And Gilson, through a journey of disappointment and frustration and searching, happened upon C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity, and she became a Christian. And Gilson didn't suddenly become attracted to men that day. Even now, 16 years later, with a husband and a daughter, she says she still experiences same-sex attraction. But she says that obedience will never lead us away from God's blessing. It will always lead us toward it. And here's something I heard her say in an interview that applies to what I'm talking about. She said, if we divorce ethics from Christ's character, then we're already off track. Always consider what he's saying from the source of his character. Because some of what he had said seemed arbitrary and cruel to me. And so I was forced to recognize that I probably wasn't understanding the words well because God's character isn't arbitrary or cruel. It takes the work of the Spirit to convict us concerning righteousness. She was willing to trust God more than her own perceptions of things. She looked to Christ's character as the grounding of his commands. Another big example of this that applies to more of us probably is forgiveness. I've had so many conversations with people where forgiving someone seemed wrong to them. It didn't seem fair. didn't seem right. And yet nothing could be more clear from the teaching of Christ. We will only do such a thing if we are convicted by the Spirit that it is the mark of true righteousness and because it is a mark of Jesus' righteousness. And now you may see why this would require convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Because you love to bop around playing your jazz. And he says, you're making a ruckus that's hurting my ears. You need to play what he's playing. And he points to Christ. But it's actually beyond that. He says, first, lay down your instrument. Let him play it for you. Soon I'll let you play some accompaniment, but he alone can play the piece perfectly. And you must trust him to play it for you. You must start by listening. Put down your tools and rationale for justifying yourself and let him justify you. Be done with your raucous self-righteousness and rely on his beautiful, melodious gift of righteousness. And this is the second aspect of righteousness that the Spirit must convict us of, that Christ's righteousness is the only righteousness among men, Amen. which he has accomplished and made available to us. So if we wish to be righteous, we must actually receive his righteousness. And this is the rationale given here, right? Jesus says that the Spirit convicts about righteousness because I go to my Father. He's going to his Father as the culmination of his atoning work. And the Apostle Paul uses the same reasoning in one of my favorite passages in Romans 8. He says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And do you see it, what he's saying? Jesus being at the right hand of God is what gives us confidence that we are justified, that we are made righteous. And this is the incredible, unique, and glorious counterintuitive truth that is at the center of Christianity. That our standing before God is not based on us Amen. and our doing. That we are made right before God because Christ is right before God. And we are united to him through our faith in him. 
And you may marvel at this mystery and, and wonder at this phenomenon, and it will never be comprehensible to you until you are convicted by the Spirit. This is who we Christians are. People who have seen the utter inadequacy of our self-righteousness and cling to the righteousness of Christ as our only hope. Freely receiving with the humility of a beggar his hand out of grace and thanking him every day with the gratitude of someone who has been rescued from death. Humbled, knowing that we don't deserve any of it. And yet, he has justified us. He has, because he loves us. And I don't know if you've noticed it explicitly, but I'm sure you've noticed it experientially, that Pastor Andrew, on Sunday mornings, he structures our order of worship, uh, our service, to, to be a, a, a picture of how we relate to God. We start by singing songs of God's, of God's greatness and glory, which draw us in, and then we sing songs that confront us with the reality of our sin and need. And then we sing songs celebrating the grace that frees us from that sin and the redemption that's in Christ that give us confidence to come near to him, to God, in renewed righteousness, in his righteousness. And worship becomes this macrocosm of my daily experience with God. This is how I relate to God every day. I run to my Father, seeking his glory and power and help. And as I approach him, I immediately sense my need and my, my inadequacy and my sin. And so what do I do? I cling to Christ believing not just passively, but actively in his righteousness counted to me. That, that when the Father looks at me, that I believe, because he told me this, I said, oh, I believe it, that when the Father looks at me, I am gleaming with the righteousness of Christ, of his Son. I am uncondemnable in Christ. And so there is therefore now no condemnation in him, we're told. And so through him, I can boldly approach the throne of grace to receive help in time of need. The Spirit must convict us concerning righteousness as well as, as of sin. Because we don't just need to turn away from our sin. We also need to turn away from our own righteousness, our attempts to justify our, our own existence, the things that we cling to that make us feel worthwhile and worthy of God's love. The Spirit convicts us of this reality that Christ's worthiness is what makes us worthy. Christ's worthiness is what makes you worthy. He convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness, but also judgment. And this is something that, this, this third thing, judgment, this is something we desperately want to ignore. We want to bury our head in the sand regarding the reality of judgment. But the Spirit makes us look up ahead and see the judgment scene that we all must be held accountable before a holy God. But notice what he connects with this in, in, in Jesus' message, how he says this. He says in verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And that's a biblical way of talking about the devil. He's the prince of the power of the air, we're told. He's, the apostle Paul refers to him and his demonic host as the rulers and authorities of the world. He, he is the, the ruler of this world, which is under what Paul calls the domain of darkness. But his power has been broken. Amen. 
and his downfall has been assured. Jesus says he is judged. In Colossians 2, it says how he was judged, that on the cross, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Some fellow Christians can lament that the world is going down the tube to the degree that it almost seems like when they talk about it that the gospel will be defeated and the devil will be victorious. But this could not be further from the case. Yes, there is a battle raging and the conflict can be intense, but Jesus has defeated the enemy and judged the kingdom of darkness. I, uh, I was playing this silly game with our college group that I made up called, Is It in the Bible or Not? Because I, I found this giant list of common sayings that most people know. Most of you would know all these, and, but have no idea that some of them are from the Bible. And one that even surprised me was the phrase, bite the dust. And... Uh, the actual phrasing, I guess, is a little different from the Bible, but it, I think it's close enough that it comes from it. It's lick the dust. Lick the dust, which I think is even more evocative, isn't it? Psalm 72.9 says, and his enemies lick the dust. That's the truth. His enemies must lick the dust. We are told of our victory in such radical terms as our judging angels on the last day. But even here and now, our life of faith, is a trumpet blast of victory over the enemy. We gather here today our evidence of his downfall. The power of the Spirit proves that truth is more powerful than lies. Love is mightier than hatred. Holiness is stronger than sin. Christ is infinitely greater than the devil. And our Savior is seated at the right hand of God, and he is sending his Spirit to convict us of his victory and equip his rallying and rally his advancing army. This is the power and, and, and truth that we must live in to be what Romans calls us, more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And though the devil's judgment is inaugurated, it is, isn't yet consummated. And he still does his evil work in this world. And you have a rough road ahead of you if you try to fight evil and sin in your own effort. The devil will laugh at you in your hubris. He is an enemy greater than feeble little you can handle. And there's this great passage in the Lord's speech to Job where he talks about the Leviathan. And I think he would say something similar to us about the devil. He says to Job, Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? Or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope on it in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? <laughs> Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? And God would say something similar to us regarding the devil. You are no match for him in yourself. And yet, he is no match for God. And in Christ Devil-conquering power is on display. And if we humbly seek him and his spirit, it will be on display in us. 
for we have been transferred out of his kingdom. Colossians says we've been transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of the beloved son in whom we have redemption. So when the spirit convicts concerning judgment, he convicts us of the reality that judgment is real, but that we need not fear it. For our enemy has been judged and conquered and we can be set free because Jesus not only judged the enemy, but he himself was judged. Bearing our penalty. Meaning, if you are in Christ through faith, you have been judged. You already have been judged. We who are in Christ through faith have stood our trial and been acquitted. Our sentence was passed on him. And there is therefore now no condemnation for us whom Christ has, been, has set free. Judgment day is not a day to be feared by the faithful. It will be the consummation of our Savior's victory. And I pray that the Holy Spirit convicts you of this great hope. Now, all this talk about the Holy Spirit by Christ, it wasn't just teaching, like theological treatise or something about what he's like. It was a prophecy. In the typical sense that we usually think of it, he was foretelling something that is about to happen. And in Acts, we see the fulfillment of this prophecy. And I think that's really cool that we could see the fulfillment of Jesus's prophecy in scripture. And so I think it's worth looking at. So in Acts 2, the spirit comes, right? And he, when he comes, he immediately does all this that Jesus said he would do. The apostles are gathered after Christ has ascended and Jesus fulfills his promise and he sends them the Holy Spirit. And when he does, what happens? The apostles preach miraculously being heard in many languages. And in particular, Peter steps up and proclaims the gospel to his fellow Jews. And here we already have some details being filled in, don't we? How does the Spirit do this work? Through people proclaiming the good news about Jesus. And through Peter's sermon, the Spirit convicts. And he convicts concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And I won't go through the whole sermon, but just the final, final couple verses will, will show us all three. In verse 35 and 36, picking up where Peter's kind of in the middle of an Old Testament prophecy here, but he says, Until I make your enemies your footstool, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of his apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Now, it's all there, isn't it? Until I make your enemies your footstool. Speaking of judgment. Let all know for certain God has made him both Lord and Christ. Speaking of righteousness. And this Jesus whom you crucified. Speaking of sin. And how do they respond when he convicts concerning judgment and righteousness and sin? It says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And that, I believe, is the conviction Jesus prophesied about. Being cut to the heart and driven to respond. And what do they say? They say, what shall we do? And so I think Peter's response is appropriate for us to close with. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off and for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for the gift of your spirit, for his severe mercy that empties us in order to fill us. I pray that you would do that work now, that you would convict us and glorify your son, that we would see him as precious and worth our all. Make him real to us through your spirit. Wake us up, Father. Make us see and believe and turn that you might heal us. And we pray with Jesus even now. Amen.